Let me read from James 5, verse 13 to 20 as we begin today. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's our text for today. Digital uh, communication or communicating in the, the modern times has meant a certain change or perhaps a loss of literary structures. Uh, we spend most of our time these days communicating in short bursts. It's, it's almost like a stream of consciousness. That's how we communicate now. Uh, here's a series of interpersonal communications that I've experienced in the 21st century. Quote, also grab a cold drink, end quote. Quote, hey, if you remember, could you bring my hat to church tomorrow, end quote. Quote, I'll be able to call you back after four o'clock, end quote. Quote, ah, what a roller coaster, end quote. And then at the outer edges of reality, JK, KK, M-M-M-R-O-F-L-I-M-O-B-R-B. That was for those under 30, uh, if you... Uh, don't understand me, then uh, you can take a course in uh, short-form texting. Uh, I also ask anyone under 30 for that. Uh, prior to the, to the digital age, as most, of you, as, as most of us will remember, what you actually used to do is you would use an ink pen and paper, uh, and you'd put the ink pen in your hand and you would write a letter to someone. You would actually draw words across the page and you'd write a letter and if you got something wrong you would have to cross it out uh, and if you got to the end of your letter and you forgot to say something you would have to start again or you would write down the bottom P.S. right and then if you forgot another thing you'd write P.S.S. and you'd keep going until you <laughs> you finally got all you want to say out. Uh, I have a, a letter in my hand here from an old friend circa 2002 uh, this, is, this is back in the early days. I'd love to read you a small excerpt from it. This is the first page. You'll see a, uh, an incredible picture of Goku uh, in the center there. He's a, uh, an iconic character. Uh, can we get a zoom in on that, please, Josh? I'm kidding. To read this letter, you must close your door and sit on your bed with your undies on your head, with your ears out the leg holes, and a pair of socks in your ears. Take a deep breath. Slowly count to ten, then lean back and read. Private, confidential, for Matthew only, okay. Do you like your new school in Toowoomba? Have you got a really good friend? I'm sort of friends with Daniel because he said Ben gets annoying to him sometimes. That was last week. He came over mine on the weekend, so it's getting better. Last Wednesday, Lachlan and I went and saw Star Wars Episode Two. 
It is so awesome. He had free tickets. He, he. This is page two, okay? Sorry I haven't sent your stuff down. Mum said that I could just send this letter, then I could send it down a little bit after because it's going to cost a bit. But it will get there, won't it? Um, Nah, just kidding. I can hear my mum out in the lounge room. She and the family are watching The State of Origin. You probably are watching too, aren't you, fella? I don't like football that much. And the letter continues for uh, four glorious pages with uh, uh, cartoons and sketches right throughout the, uh, the note. It's uh, quite an incredible letter from a 12-year-old boy, right? Impressive. Impressive. Now, this, this means something to me because it was written about a situation that I'm personally familiar with. That was a, a best friend uh, from grade seven. You know, we formed a great relationship. I moved out of town, uh, you know, I moved from Townsville to Toowoomba, and this is a letter that, that followed in the, the months after that. Uh, now, it, it might be written in a language that I'm, I haven't spoken in a while, uh, but I can still comprehend the language. I'm still familiar with it and the situation. Um, now, for you, though, at, at the surface, you might understand some of the concepts But if you were to talk to me about it, you would have a much greater understanding. Hearing this, you're probably asking yourself, well, who's Daniel? Who's Ben? What is this Star Wars episode two they talk of? Uh, And and even who sent the letter? I didn't even tell you whose name it was. I didn't tell you the date. Uh, There's a a lot of information that if you had a conversation with me, uh, would help you to understand what the letter's about. The point is that a letter offers you one side of a conversation. So you hear a conversation from Jesse to me, Matt. You hear one side of a conversation. And the question we're faced with whenever we read a letter is, well, what's the other side of the conversation? Who is the the recipient? What are they going through? What's happening here? What is the context to which this letter is written? And now the obstacle that arises with the New Testament letters is that us, the modern reader, we pick up the Bible and particularly the New Testament letters and we, we hear and read the words you and we and we naturally place ourselves as the subject of the letter, right? For for most Christians, the letters are often the most read and most preached texts because they feel like the most relatable material. Because we can just insert ourselves right into the story there and it feels like the author is writing to us. They feel like God's word to me. Now, of course, we know better. But do we? We readily jump and, and cling to beautiful, shareable one-liners. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Amen, right? You can easily see that with a beautiful mountain backdrop quoted across social media platforms. Well, what about stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness? Have you quoted that recently? But what about from now on, let those who have lived, uh, sorry, from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Has that been on the wallpaper recently? 
It's caused you serious strife if it has. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. I didn't hear any amens. All right, like, come on, amen. Like, let's, let's talk. And we, uh, we jump into the letters and, and we find little fleeting scriptures and texts that we love and are shareable, but we just write off the things that we don't understand. And we have a tendency to read what we want to see. Thomas Long says this, Fundamentalists, charismatics, social activists, feminists, evangelicals, traditionalists, liberationists, all of us, in fact, go to the texts of the Bible and return with trophies that are replicas of our own theological image. Does that, does that make sense? We go to the Bible and, and we come back with a trophy that looks like the things that we already believe, like the things that we want to believe. And he continues and he says, It's no easy task genuinely to listen to the voice of Scripture rather than merely hear the sound of our own echoes. So here's the question that I've got for you. After a series in James, we are finishing James today. We will close the book on James and as a church community, probably not come back to it in the next decade. Right? Like That's the way this will work. We'll go through other books of the Bibles. We might... Well, I don't actually remember the particular outline after Christmas, but we might do a prophet, we might do a gospel, we might do something from the, from the Torah, right? We'll be all over scriptures. And I wonder, after a series in James, how differently you read this letter. So I want you to consider a few things with me as we close the letter today. The way letters were written in the first century the theme of the letter of James and the specific exhortations given at the close of the letter. And it's my hope by considering those three things uh, that you'll have a a greater appreciation for what James is trying to accomplish here and what he's been trying to accomplish the entire time in this letter. Let me start with the first thing, the way letters are written in the first century. Just quickly, the book of James is a letter. So it's an It's written by an author to an intended audience, to a recipient who have, who both have a particular worldview with cultural, political, and spiritual contexts. Now, the general way this would work is the author would have a collection of material, old material and new material, thoughts, illustrations, poems that they would collect from their time in ministry, from their time teaching and preaching, and they'd work through this material with a group of trusted companions throughout their day, as they traveled, as they ate meals together, they would work through material that they would perhaps collect into a letter. So most of us, when we think about the way a letter was written, we imagine an old man in a dark room writing by himself. That is not the way any of these New Testament letters would have been written. They were written by a small group of people discussing and and having conversations, going through old material, just like Jesus, when he told parables, he didn't tell a million parables. He would have repeated himself, right? Ever notice how the Gospels often provide slightly different variations of some of Jesus' stories? What's happening there? They're not misinformed. Jesus is reusing some of his material, like an itinerant uh, a speaker that goes to multiple locations and they travel and they speak 
Well, they, they don't come up with a new sermon every week, right? They don't, they don't preach a, a million sermons. Well, they have some common themes they keep coming back to. And that's what happens here. Uh, the author would have a, a group of trusted companions. They'd work out what do we want to communicate in this letter. And when they were ready, they'd hire a professional scribe to then come and create the first draft of the letter. So they'd, they'd provide the outline of the letter, notes, uh, any sort of key collections, and they'd give those to the scribe. The scribe would write the first draft, bring it back, they'd review it, draft again, draft again, until they were ready to write out the final letter. And at this point, they'd have the, the final letter uh, written, uh, produced, at great expense, and then they'd give that letter to someone with specific instructions about how it was to be read aloud. Here's how we want you to read it. Here's how we want you to address any particular concerns that people might have. Here's our, here's our thoughts on those matters. And this is the, the general template for writing a New Testament letter. And, and letters written in the first century follow the same sort of theme. And, and it, in a way that modern letters follow a template, right? If you open up Microsoft Word or Google Docs and you go into templates, you can find a letter template there where the date's in the corner and the name's there and the company name's there and et cetera, to whom it may concern. New Testament letters followed a similar theme. They would generally have four components. The opening address, sender, receiver, greeting. So that's, that's the opening address. The second component is thanksgiving. The third is the body of the letter, and the fourth is the closing. So the opening address, you can see this in James. If you just quickly jump back up to James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, the opening address, and the thanksgiving. Here's an example from a 3rd century BC letter. Tobias to Apollonius, greeting. If you are well, and if all your affairs are proceeding according to your will, many thanks to the gods. We are also well, always remembering you as I should. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Does that, like, does that ring any bells? Does that not sound like Paul? Right? Many thanks to the gods. We are also well, always remembering you as I should. Surely you can hear Paul saying... We also remember you in our prayers daily, right? Paul and the New Testament letters, uh, the New Testament writers are following a template as they write to these churches. Here's Ephesians 1 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter would then have a body, and then the letter would have a closing. And the closing would include any travel plans and greetings to particular people, any requests they'd like to make, and a prayer or praise to God. Ephesians 6 closes like this. So that you also may know I am, uh, sorry, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. And that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What's so amazing about this? And the reason, or one of the reasons I mention this, one of the reasons is I want you to have a greater understanding of the New Testament letters. But one of the reasons I mentioned that this morning is James just doesn't care that much about the template. 
right? If you look at the book of James and you look at all of the other New Testament letters, you sort of go, well, what are you doing, James? Right? His opening address is short and concise. There isn't a thanksgiving at all. He cracks the whip from the outset and he rides pedal to the metal right through to the finish. This car doesn't get warmed up. It's not idling in the driveway. It's four degrees outside and the driver starts it up and immediately takes it up to 6,000 RPMs. It's a mum who's had an interrupted morning at home and looks up at the clock and it's 8.25 a.m. and they're still at home on a school day, right? Like straight down the street. Consider his opening address again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Full stop, right? Where Paul would go on with a long, eloquent greeting and an encouragement and a praise be to God our Father. James is like, greetings. Now where were we, right? Let's get that out of the road. Let's get straight into it. Even in his closing, which technically and structurally starts in verse 12 through to verse 20, it isn't a closing, It's a continued exhortation. He's squeezing every last bit out of the letter. And we have to ask, what is he doing? What is James trying to do here? What is the purpose of the letter? I wonder if you've ever got yourself into the situation where someone has said to you, well, buddy, actions speak louder than words. Or perhaps... Well, why don't you walk the talk, mate? If so, it may have been the case that you've made a bold statement and someone is calling your bluff, in which case you end up doing something way outside your comfort zone, like impromptu public performances or dangerous stunts, or you end up swallowing your words in shame, right? This challenge is essentially the driving force of the book of James. What you do matters. James, just to give you a little more context, James is a pastor in the Jerusalem church. He's a leader in the early church who is writing to Messianic Jews outside of Jerusalem. They're facing poverty due to a severe famine in the region, and they're facing persecution from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. These are the very first Christian converts. James is the first letter written to the early church. And he's writing a letter that could better be viewed as a lecture. And he's writing to encourage them to pursue a life of wholehearted devotion to Jesus. This is what James is about. James is deeply committed to Christians living out what they confess to believe. If you confessed Christ, if you are really his, then it means something for your money. It means something for your tongue. It means something for how you treat the poor. It changes the way you plan. It transforms your desires. James is after wholehearted devotion to Christ. So if you've wrestled with the idea that Christians can come across as hypocrites, we'll get in line (laughs) because James is already on it. He is deeply committed to wholehearted devotion to Christ So what happens is James unfolds his letter through a series of short wisdom speeches that consider different practical areas of life where we need Christ's power and wisdom to grow. That brings us to the closing of the letter. The exhortations given in James 13 to 20. 
So here, at this point in the text, James is concluding his letter with a series of rapid-fire exhortations that bring the letter to an abrupt close. So again, if you think about this practically, he and the scribes are considering how much space they've got left on this piece of parchment. And he wants, to, he wants to squeeze in every last little exhortation he can. And you can see James's practical focus right through to the end of the letter. Is anyone among you suffering? Verse 13. More literally, is anyone here experiencing something bad? Right? And to which most of us would respond, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll put my hand up for that. Yeah, I'm experiencing something bad. The the reality for all of us is that life in a fallen world means that we're subject to sin and suffering. Bad things will and do happen to us. The question that we're not asking is whether bad things will happen or not. The question is, how do I respond when they happen? So what is it? Is anyone among you suffering Seek vengeance, run away, give up, laugh it off, think positive thoughts. No, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Well, thanks, James. <laughs> thanks, man. Like, that's so helpful. <laughs> if that's not a token line, right? If that's not like a throwaway line, then I don't know what is. Like, put that one on the Facebook banner for a second. But no, we know what James is getting at here. It's not necessarily for the trouble to stop. We know what James is getting at here because he's already been through this in the letter. He started the letter with this, didn't he? Chapter 1, it's all about suffering. It's all about perseverance. all about patience in trials. James is coming full circle here, right? There is a little bit of literary structure here. We don't have to completely abandon it. James is coming back to the start of the letter And you'll remember him saying, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Know that testing produces perseverance. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Know what the Christian prayer sounds like? Jesus, help me to know joy in this. This is really hard. This this feels really heavy. This weight is too much for me to bear. I I don't know what to do about this. I'm stuck. I don't feel like I can move forward. Give me strength, God. Would you help help me to see more clearly? Would you give me wisdom? What am I to do? Right? Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray and pray James 1. Give me perseverance, God. Give me strength. Help me to see this more clearly. Help me to know joy in the middle of this. As crazy as that sounds, as drowned out as I feel, would you help me to know joy? Trials come, bad things come, and wholehearted devotion looks like clinging to Christ through our trouble. Is anyone cheerful? More literally, is anyone in good spirits? Is there anything lifting your spirits? Now, I wonder how this sits for the ordinary Australian for whom good spirits often sounds like, oh, good and you, right? For most of us, good spirits is a, um, is a frightening concept, right? It's like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good. <laughs> yeah. 
And we, we experience good spirits in ourselves, driving the car, listening to a song that we love, right? Or, or, or like in moments of isolation that seem to be so fleeting. Sometimes it feels like there are, there are some people who just happen to possess a permanent glowing smile, you know, a, a cheerful disposition. Maybe you've experienced this. There's a uh, certain cafe in town that feels like walking to the ending of a Disney movie every time. Hi, how you going? And uh, it's pretty hard for me. I don't go to that cafe anymore <laughs> because it's, uh, it's, it's like you choke. You walk in the door and you choke. And some of you have been there and you love it. But just for, for most regular Australians, it's a little bit too much. Uh, but although we often struggle to let it out, right, although most of us struggle to express it, there is something intuitive about singing when we're cheerful, isn't there? Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. It's the, it's the quiet hum as you eagerly await meeting with someone that you really care about. It's the, it's the song that comes as you walk through a beautiful park, right? Now, this doesn't have to be some classical masterpiece. I just mean the song that pops into your head, right? Just a joyful little melody, just the hit on the radio. At the very least, there is an intuitive connection there where we are prompted to sing when we're cheerful. But James commands us to sing. This isn't just a good idea. This isn't just, well, yeah, it happens at times. I just happen to find myself overflowing in a song. No, 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 no. This is a command. One of the most commanded things in Scripture is that we praise God in song. Right? Why do you think this is? Why do you think that we do it every week at a church gathering? Well, it's just the way that you do the gathering. Well, it's just there's the, you do that and you do the other thing. And you, well, what? Like, why? Why would you do that? Have you asked that question before? It's because when we praise God for his blessings, we are turning our affections towards him. And we are turning away from the idols of our heart. How quickly we abandon the creator for the creation. How quickly we sing the praises of another person or an achievement or a team or a success. Right? I'm not into sports, but if you're into sports, you probably know a few anthems. Right? And how quickly we sing these joyful anthems at a great victory. Right? I mean, not in golfing. I mean, I haven't heard it in golfing, but uh, it just came to me. But for, for most other sports, right? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> he sinks the hole in one and the crowd starts singing out an anthem. And the golfer's like, what's happening here? Uh, quiet, please. Uh, but, but how slow we are how slow we are to sing the praises of God as we stumble in on a Sunday morning, weary-eyed and lost in some other world, right? We don't have a single blessing apart from him. There is not a breath that you take every day that is apart from the grace of God. There is not a day that you don't wake up and that your body is not sustained by the grace of God. That his life 
That his ruach, his spirit, is not sustaining you. You have nothing apart from him. Your life is by his grace. So what does singing say? Singing says that God has my affections. Singing is an act of the heart. It is not simply a logical thing, right? It is not A and then B and then C. Oh, and then I guess it's D. No, singing is an act of the heart. Make melody to the Lord. Singing is a tool that awakens and redirects our affections. One of the challenges, I think, particularly comes to men in the Australian church. In our culture, affection is often viewed as effeminate. Men don't love things. They're into them. It was all right. What? Wow, man. Like, are we, are we there? Like, are we all there? Oh, yes, yes. Really good. Yeah, cool, man. Yeah, yeah. You seem like a really passionate guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> like, oh, I spent all that money for that kind of response? Really, dude? Men don't love things. The only affectionate men you often see are the ones that you laugh at in soap operas. But that is not true for those who know Christ. As we see more and more of Christ's grace, as we behold his beauty like we were made to, we spill out in praise for him. We cannot contain it. You cannot contain glory. And beauty, we share it. And even when we're a dim of sight, even when it's hard for us to see, we sing and we train in the practice of singing to turn our affections towards Christ in faith. Wholehearted devotion looks like turning our affections to Christ in song. Is anyone among you sick? An interesting turn here from the last two phrases where James doesn't give us a one-liner. He says, then he must call for the elders of the church and they ought to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. So more seriously, or more clearly, sorry, if anyone is seriously ill to the point of being bedridden, this isn't a uh, trivial request. This isn't a cold and a headache. This isn't a like 1-800-call-the-elders For any old sickness, this is, if you are seriously ill to the point of being bedridden, to the point where you need to call the elders to come to you, well, you can't just go to them. This is for those who are seriously ill, and this is also for the church today. James says, call the elders. He doesn't say call the apostles, right? He says, call the elders, and our Elders continue to practice this within the church. This happens within the project. Now, let me make a few clarifying statements here because there's a, there's a, the, the argument that James makes here, there's a little bit of overlap between sickness and sin. So he says here, they're going to pray over him and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be, they will be forgiven. And then he goes on to say, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And he's making a connection there. So let me give you two clarifying statements. And there's a lot more to this. 
But just like James is giving us punchy, concise statements, all I'm going to give you this morning is punchy, concise statements. (laughs) And you can wrestle with it. All sickness is the result of sin. If there was never any sin, there would never be any sickness. Right? That is just the universal reality for for humanity at the moment. All sickness is the result of sin. But hear me very clearly on this. My sickness is not necessarily the result of my personal sin. Right? Those two things are critical to hear here. All sickness is the result of sin. God made a perfect world. Right? And through our disobedience, sin and death entered the world. So sickness is the result of sin. But my sickness is not necessarily the result of my personal sin. We share in humanity's common sickness. We live in a broken world. However, it can be that when a Christian is sick, they are reminded of their sinfulness. They're compelled to repent. They're led to repent. When they're sick, they're downcast, they're humbled, and they're reminded of their sin. Sickness can be a God-given instrument that brings to the surface sin and failure. It can be that. Don't neglect that. Often when we think about people in a state of sickness, the quick response to them as they, as they give to us their downcast remarks is, oh, don't worry, you're only feeling sick. And we quickly, we quickly hide away or shy away from the fact that there may be sin that needs to be confessed there. It's like, oh, no, 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 you've already got enough on your plate now. Well, no, no, let's talk about that as well because that could be key and pivotal to holistic healing. One, one thought, one more thought on James's statement here, because it's quite, a, uh, it's quite a difficult statement, because James says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Well, uh, that's not true, James, right? Because that hasn't happened every time, has it? How are you to handle that? Let me give you one statement one short statement from a, uh, a wise commentator. He says this, Prayer for healing, offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer, does bring healing. But only when it is God's will to heal, will that faith, itself a gift of God, be present. Right? When, when God's sovereign will intersects with our human participation. Only then, when it's God's will to heal, will that faith, will that confidence, itself a gift of God, be present. So we persevere in prayer. Yes, we will all die one day. And we'll all be fully and finally restored. Nevertheless, there are moments where it's appropriate today to pray for God's special intervention. Right When someone calls for the elders and the elders feel, we need to pray for this. We need to believe for God's special, unique intervention here. Wholehearted devotion looks like actively trusting in the God-given means of grace. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. 
and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. More literally, confess. When, when James says confess your sins to one another, confess means to agree with. Now, this is, this, is pretty, this is pretty clear, this one. In order to confess, there must be a party who has been wronged and given you something to agree with. Does that make sense? So James tells us to confess our sins to one another, and that's a two-way interaction, isn't it? Confess your sins to one another or agree with one another. How am I to confess to someone who hasn't given me anything to agree with? Right Now there's layers to that and, and there's sensitivities to be considered there. But one of my first encouragements to us is that gives us a significant responsibility to one another, doesn't it? If you feel like you've been sinned against, like sincerely sinned against, you ought to do something about that. Now, I don't mean I don't mean to put every minor detail on the table. I don't mean to like confront every and anyone who you feel like has done any minimal thing against you. I mean if you feel that there has been a serious sin, an offense committed against you, you need to say something. You have a responsibility before God and that person to say something. So, so the model James gives us is to confess to the one you committed the offense against. So I can see three, three types or three sort of frames here. One, it was before God. You sinned against God. <laughs> then go confess to God personally. Two, it was before another or others privately. Then go confess to them privately or three, it was before others publicly, then go confess publicly. Right? Don't allow unconfessed sin to disrupt your relationships and destroy you. Confess and pray together. Again, James is after wholehearted devotion. And that looks like an honest, humble confession to those we sin against. My brethren, if any among you who strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James's letter to make an obvious statement has been full of specific rebukes and commands. So there are more uh, imperative verbs per word in James than any other New Testament book. That doesn't come as a surprise to you. James included 54 imperatives in his 108 verses. On average, one call to action in every other verse, right? So little encouragement, little comment. Now do this, <laughs> right? Little encouragement. Now do this. James, is, James has just been cracking the whip for five chapters. So it's fitting 
that at the close of his letter, he would, in the end, turn to the community with an encouragement to intervene on behalf of fellow Christians who may be having more difficulty with what James has been discussing. Perhaps those for whom the trial is too heavy or the night is too dark or the, the affection, the idol too strong. Those who aren't seeing something clearly, they belong to Christ, but there is an error significant enough to mean that they need to turn back. And in in similar form to the model of confession above, there is an error that needs to be addressed. There is enough discernment, thoughtfulness, and clarity to confront a believer on where their life is out of step with the gospel. Now, notice here in, in James's last few verses, whose role is it to go after people? Well, it's the pastors, of course, right? I'm, I'm sure he says it in there. My fellow pastors, if any among you strays from the truth, no. <laughs> What's he say? My brethren. My brethren, us, us, all of us, not the pastors, not the elders, for all of us, we are the ones who go after those who are are off track, who is in error. We are the ones, right? So rather than looking across in our church community and saying, well, I hope the pastor does something about that, right? Like, well, that sounds like it be a bit of hard work. (laughs) No, we are the ones who are radically committed to Christian community flourishing. And we go after those who are in error. The church is a kingdom of priests. Those who represent Christ to one another. Who can say with confidence, come back to Christ. The good shepherd who restores you, who forgives you, who disciplines you in love. Who intercedes for you. In classic James style, wholehearted devotion here looks like courageous confrontation. I'll invite the the music team to come up. As we draw to a close, I invite you to consider the theme of James's letter again. Wholehearted devotion. And I want you to think for a second if that sounds a little drastic to you. Perhaps faith in your mind is a little less involved. Perhaps it's, uh, it's more on your terms. It's a uh, more casual thing. It's a, it's a comfort thing. Let me be clear for you today. Christ is coming for you in your entirety. He will not settle for a part of you. He demands wholehearted devotion. Hear it from Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's not going to work. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. If that sounds a little strong to you, perhaps you have a misunderstanding of salvation. Christ's call to us in salvation is not a light one. 
It's a call to come and die, to come and follow, to come and serve, to come and let go of everything we have. It is not an easy one. But, but why is it so costly? Why is it so? Have you, have you thought about that? Well, let me encourage you today that Christ wants to be for us our ultimate good. Christ wants to be for you your ultimate good. And He doesn't want anything to get in the way of that. Right? If Christ is committed to your redemption, to your ultimate renewal, do you think He's going to be happy letting you drink from the dirty cistern on the side while he offers you the waters of living, right? That, sorry, the river of living waters, right? If Christ is radically committed to you, do you think he's going to be happy with you loving idols on the side, right? With having affairs, with other loves, while he offers himself to you? We were made for him. We were made to know Him, to be known by Him, to truly image Him. And He knows, Christ knows that our half-hearted efforts will only rob us of true lasting joy. That's the goal here. James isn't just cracking the whip for the sake of cracking the whip, right? He's not aiming for a church full of like, like oppressed, disgruntled, Christians. No, he wants his he wants his church and 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 I want and we want our church to know the joy of wholehearted devotion. Right? Christ my all in all. So I encourage you as we close James I encourage you to read back over the book. Reflect on some of James's key themes, your words, the way you treat the poor, who you show favour to, the, the way you make plans. I wonder what wholehearted devotion means for you. I wonder what needs to change for you. And in James's practical way, what is it? What specifically is it? What habit do you need to stop? What area of your life needs transformation? What sin do you need to confess and repent of to someone? So that you might know lasting joy in Christ.